Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications, and geographical research. Australia has made headline news in recent months due to the wildfires. Today we meet Dr. Helen Clue, a physical geographer and scientist. Helen is a senior research scientist and former director of the Climate Science Centre in the CSIRO. Thank you for joining us today, Helen. Firstly, could you tell us what you do and who the CSIRO National Climate Science Centre is? Thank you. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm an atmospheric scientist by training, and uh, my area of research interest is actually the way that the, the land surface and the atmosphere interact with each other to create our climate and exchange carbon dioxide and water vapour and so forth. So that's my, my background and the research that I've done for most of my career. But over the last decade, um, I've been in more of a leadership role within CSIRO. So I'm currently the director of CSIRO's Climate Science Centre. So that Climate Science Centre brings together or unites all of the, what you might call, physical climate science within CSIRO. So that's our climate observations, our climate modelling and our climate processes work. Uh, CSIRO is an interesting organisation. Uh, it's the it's Australia's national uh, science agency. It's, it's quite large. We have about roughly 5,000 staff spread across scores of sites around Australia. And it's unique in that it's an applied research agency. It's about addressing the big national challenges that Australia has. Um, It's quite multidisciplinary and its um, niche, if you like, is its ability to form a a team of people with different expertise to to address a particular problem. It's been around for almost a century, uh, helping Australia navigate challenges like um, enhancing our agricultural productivity, challenges of climate change. We do work in areas from agriculture uh, through to manufacturing, through minerals exploration. So it's a very broad organisation, but it does have a strong area of science around environmental science, and that includes the climate science, which I'm in. So you must have trained as a physical geographer. How do you think that background and perspective has helped you get to that senior role you're in now with CSIRO? Yes, so you're right. I did train as a physical geographer and um, I went into geography at university because I absolutely loved um, understanding how the natural environment worked and that took me naturally into into geography and then into physical geography. Um, And I always value that grounding that I had in physical geography because it gave me... um, a broad understanding of the environment and in particular the importance of the environment as a system, so the linkages and the interactions and the feedbacks and and so forth, and to take that overarching perspective. But I ended up becoming more focused on atmospheric science because I realised to really have the impact I wanted to have, I needed to focus more and go deeper rather than broader. But now that I'm in a leadership role, to answer your question, that tr- that background has been really useful because as a leader of um, a centre of around 150 staff, 
who are studying the role of oceans in the climate system, the role of land, the role of atmosphere. That breadth um, that I trained in as a physical geographer has really helped me understand a little bit of the science that all of my staff are doing. So that breadth has been really important. But also, you know, the climate system itself is, is highly interactive with lots of feedbacks. And I think that my geography training helped give me that sort of innate understanding of of the climate system in a sense. So I think it was a really, really good grounding. The world's media has been sharing images of the wildfires. Can you give a little context, their scale, the intensity and the impact that these fires are having on the natural environment and human populations? Yes, well, the world's been galvanised, I think, by these uh, images and some of them are very, you know, very distressing and, and quite... Uh, horrendous really about these these bushfires. Of course, we have to acknowledge that Australia's always had fire. Um, our ecosystems that we have have actually evolved to become not only, if you like, fire resistant or, um, you know, be able to be resilient in the face of fire, but in fact they need fire. Many of our tree species and so forth need fire to reproduce. So fire is a natural part of Australia's ecology. We've always had bushfires, but I think that when the analysis is done of the 2019-2020 bushfire season, you know, the signs are already there that this has really been an extraordinary and unprecedented bushfire season, even though we have that long history of bushfires, and some of those have been very serious indeed. And why do I say unprecedented, or are the commentators saying that? There's several reasons. One of them is just the sheer geographical range that has been bushfire affected. They st- these fires started in Queensland back in August, um, and then we had New South Wales, and now we've got Victoria. So most states of Australia have been affected by bushfires this season. So they've been, you know, had an extraordinary range geographically. I think the uh, other sort of sense is the intensity of the fires themselves. We've seen extraordinary fire behaviour where the bushfires themselves have created their own weather. They've created what we call pyrocumulus clouds that extend tens of kilometres up into the atmosphere and create their own mini tornado um, in one particular instance, but also eject these embers tens of kilometres downwind and, you know, perpetuate the fire. So extraordinary fire behaviour that we, we've we seen in one or two bushfires in recent years, but we've seen much more of that. So very intense fires um, over very large regions of the nation. I think the, the, the actual hectares that have been burnt is still being estimated, but the latest estimate that I've seen in the media is something of order of 10 million hectares has been burnt. I think at the moment they're talking in sort of 2,000 homes have been damaged. So these are extraordinary numbers in terms of the impacts of the fires as well. Uh, so the impact and the damage, not just to the forests um, that you will have seen in the images, but also the impact on wildlife. There's estimates, you've probably seen this, of maybe up to a billion animals killed in these fires. So it's just the extent and the impact of these fires has really led us to think that they're going to be unprecedented. And then the last thing I'd say is that they occurred on the back of an extraordinary year in terms of 
the climate of Australia. 2019 was an extraordinarily warm year, the lowest rainfall on record. So it was also a year that climatically set the scene for these extraordinary fires. So it's yes, the scale and intensity quite extraordinary. So that's sort of that describes what it's been like. And I, I guess there's one more thing that I'd add that has been a little bit of a twist in the tale to, to the story of our bushfires this summer. As I said, we're, we're used to bushfires, but I think the surprise for people has been the impact on our air quality of the smoke in most of the capital cities, Sydney, Canberra, where I live, Melbourne and Hobart, have all had air quality that at various times has been the worst in the world as a result of the smoke. And we're very lucky in Australia, we're actually used to very clean air. And so these long periods, weeks to months of having smoke, has really affected people. And that was um, been a bit of a surprise for people as well. So all of these impacts that we've seen have just added to this extraordinary fire season that we've had. I'm just wondering if there have been any other changes to wind patterns or other climatic conditions that could have contributed to these wildfires, like prevailing winds. I'll go back a step and then come to your question. When you're looking at bushfires, there are four factors that you need um, or are relevant to the way bushfires grow and and or the or bushfire risk. The first is that you need to have an ignition source. The second is that you need to have an amount of fuel. So the amount of fuel that you've got is important. The moisture content of that fuel is important. And then the weather that you have that then spreads and grows the fire. So all those four factors are important. And actually, the weather and climate play a role really in all of those factors. Now, I won't go through all that in great detail, but if we look at this bushfire season, the role of the climate of in the last year, as I said, it's really the um, unprecedented heating that we've had, the extraordinarily low rainfall that meant that the landscape was incredibly dry um, and the and the bushfire fuel and the trees and everything were, were very, very dry. So it was really well conditioned, if you like, that as soon as we add an ignition source, then it, it burst into fire. So the main drivers of these bushfires has been the, the very dry weather, the very hot weather, the incidence of lightning that has um, ignited the fires. And then I'll come to your point about the winds. So one of the things that, you know, what's caused that heat, what's caused that dryness, there's um, a number of phenomena or processes that have contributed to that that influence the, the climate of Australia from year to year. And one of those is something called the Southern Annular Mode, which <laughs> what nurse is that, people would say. It's just an influence on our climate of Australia that affects where the westerlies are blowing. Now, normally at this time of the year, the westerlies are far south of the Australian continent. But in this spring and summer, that belt of westerlies due to this mode of variable climate variability, that belt of westerlies actually moved further north and stayed 
over the southern part of the Australian continent. So you're right, there were stronger westerlies, especially through the spring and the early summer um, that contributed as well. So we've got natural climate variability, that phenomena, the another phenomena called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is to do with the oceans to the northwest of off Australia. And when that's in a particular phase, it um, means that we get very hot, dry air blowing over Australia from the north and delays the onset of the monsoon. So we had a very positive Indian Ocean dipole as well. And that positive phase of the Indian Ocean dipole is highly correlated with conditioning the landscape for bad bushfires. So we had those two phenomena coming together and then they were superimposed on the long-term global warming of the planet, that's climate change. So we had all of those factors coming together to create, you know, pardon the pun, but a perfect storm really for this bushfire season. I was just thinking that exact phrase, a perfect storm, of westerly wind changes, changes in the dipole, ignition, as you said, and especially an increase in dry undergrowth. Is this the new normal every year for Australia? We've been seeing in our observations for many decades now a long-term trend in the fire, extreme fire weather conditions, um, the heating, the dryness. Those factors, um, which we call, which I call the fire weather, we actually combine them into a metric or an index. It's called the FFDI. And it just combines air temperature, relative humidity, the amount of um, moisture in the fuel, so um, you know how much rainfall there's been in the lead up to the season, and wind speed. So they all get combined into this index. And so we can look at what the trend of that index has been over the last 30 or 40 years. And when we look at our observations, we have a, a trend of increasing extremes in that fire weather index or extremes in fire weather. So what happened this summer is consistent with that observed long-term trend. The other thing that our climate science has done is to look at what we think climate change is going to mean into the future. So when we do projections of what that fire weather looks like in the future, and we started doing this work 20 years ago or 30 years ago, that those climate projections said that we could expect into the future increased severity of fire weather. And so what we're seeing this year is consistent with those long-term trends that we've observed and what our climate projections said. I don't want to call it the new normal because that sounds like it's going to be every year. And the thing about climate change is it's a long-term trend, but there is still variability. So we will still have wet years in the future where we have low bushfire incidents. But we are going to see um, we're already seeing an increased frequency of extreme fire weather and an increase in intensity of that fire weather. So if we have an ignition source and we have a fuel supply, then we're going to have increased bushfires in the future, increased intensity and frequency of those because of the impact that the weather and climate has on fire. But it's not going to be every year. There will still be variability. But what we've seen this year is pretty much what our science has been saying we are going to increasingly see uh, in the future. And we said that 20 years ago, so we're in that future now, and that is going to continue uh, in the decades ahead. 
With that increase in climatic extremes, what are the timescales for ecosystem recovery? Will they be able to replenish in between the dry seasons? And that is, you know, that so-called $64 million question. It's one of the key pieces of science that researchers, not just in Australia, but I think around the world, will be looking at. We've been looking at that already, but I think this bushfire season has probably really galvanised the, the realisation that we we absolutely have to look at that. And it's going to be variable. You know, there's a quite a as you can imagine, um, many different ecosystems in Australia. As I said before, right at the beginning, these bushfires have extended from the rainforests of Queensland to the southern temperate forests of New South Wales and Victoria to um, old growth, you know, wetter forests of Tasmania. So those are all very different ecosystems, actually. And so their response times, the way that they respond to these fires is all they're all going to be quite different. So there's some really important science that needs to be done. But I will say that my colleagues in CSIRO um, and outside of CSIRO are saying, um, and it's in the press, we're concerned that some of these ecosystems are burning too frequently. I read something just this morning that said in the, um, you know, the iconic Blue Mountains region of New South Wales, which I'm sure people in the UK probably have heard of as well, that it's sort of one of our iconic tourist regions, that that region, some of it burnt only six years ago, and now it's burnt again, and that might be too frequent for that ecosystem, and they're very concerned about its recovery rate. So there are some you know, the, the scientists are concerned about this, but we just don't know. You know, I need to be very careful here and say we're not actually sure. And there's some important research to be done to see whether we have indeed reached that kind of tipping point for those ecosystems. But I think that the science is saying that for some of them, they may end up changing um, as a result of this changes in frequency and intensity of fires, especially as we look forward into the future, which was part of your question. Um, these ones we've got now, maybe it's okay. It depends what happens over the next decades, but our know, science suggests that that's a real risk for some of these ecosystems. You mentioned research there. What is the CSIRO planning to do? Has this year affected your decision-making, your models, or your future research? Yes, I mean, CSIRO has um, been been very busy over the last few weeks thinking uh, how we can help. We're here to use our science and our technology and our innovation to, to help Australia. That's our purpose. Um, and so, you know, we've got a significant event on happening right now. And, and so what CSIRO, in collaboration with all of the other research agencies in Australia, and I should say that actually, and say that at the beginning to answer your question, one of our roles is to actually catalyse and facilitate collaboration. We don't do everything ourselves always. And so what we were looking at is almost on kind of three areas. The first is, well, what science do we already have that can be of benefit right now? I mean, we've got communities that are needing to recover. We've, the fires are still burning. They're not over yet. We have air quality challenges in our cities. So what is what science do we have here and now that can be of benefit to those communities, those cities right now to be of assistance? So we already have developed 
for example, a smoke forecasting system that our Bureau of Meteorology, so that's our weather forecasting agency, use in an operational sense. So we're looking at how we can use that to be to provide greater um, quality of information to communities as they, you know, have to think ahead about whether that football game next weekend can go ahead because there's too much smoke. You know, what can we do to help communities uh, recover? So we're bringing together our research immediately to help that recovery and help get us through the rest of the bushfire season. And then at the same time, we're thinking, okay, if we want to uh, help Australia be better prepared for this increased risk that we now see what that risk looks like, this is a, a real life example, then my climate science centre that I direct, we, um, we've actually worked with other agencies to develop Australia's national weather and climate model, it's called ACCESS. So how can we make sure that ACCESS is providing as, as good quality weather forecast as possible so that we're giving that lead time to the agencies to manage fire. So, you know, look at our modelling capability. How can that be improved both on a on a weather forecasting timescale, the days ahead, but also to provide better information about the, um, the seasonal outlook. And maybe we've just started building a decadal prediction capability to look at what the climate might be in the next five years. And so, you know, we're looking to see how we can improve our predictive capability. Uh, we also saw this, and I mentioned this earlier, we've seen bushfire behaviour this summer that has challenged our models of fire spread. We've got very good models of fire spread, but we've found that the fires have behaved in ways that are not well predicted by our bushfire spread models. So we're looking at that as well. How can we better capture how fires spread in hilly terrain, but also when you've got this incredible energy in these fires, creating their own weather, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, one of our tragic deaths of a firefighter was in a vehicle that got flipped, but and they think that was by a tornado that was created by the fire itself. So we're looking at those predictive uh, models. Now that's not going to be CSIRO on our own, that's going to be working with the universities as well to see how we can improve some of those predictive models. But we've also got people working on how to protect our firefighters and vehicles and making sure they're safe when they're going out there, designing materials that are less flammable, uh, fire suppressants. There's a whole range of work that CSIRO is doing that we can marshal to try and and we have been actually doing that work for I think 50 to 60 years already so it's about you know what more can we do to bring that science to really address this emerging bushfire risk so to answer your question yes uh, it's not really changing our decision making it's just galvanizing our priorities as to what we can do now that's really going to be a benefit to the nation. And as I said, working together with all of the other researchers as well in Australia and internationally. I've got a colleague actually who's working very hard right now just to answer the, what might seem like a very simple question. What area of Australia has been burnt in this season and how does that compare? What's the trend? So he's collaborating with people from overseas, NASA and agencies like that to answer that question. What's the greenhouse gas emissions from this fire? So um, actually not only are we collaborating within Australia but internationally as well to, um, to bring the best science that we can to answer the questions that the public will have and to ensure that Australia is better prepared for these fires into the future. The greenhouse gas emission levels have spiked in Australia and you must have lost some ground 
on approaching net zero. But you've also lost carbon stores, I imagine. The woodlands, the soils that would have once locked in the carbon. Yes, that's um, one of the other things that, this is why we're, we're embarking on this research quite quickly to see if we can you know, quantify this because the, the early estimates are huge in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions, you know, and I don't want to um, go out there with a number when it's still too uncertain yet, but there's, we're very sure that if you compare it to our annual emissions from industry, um, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from this bushfire season, those two numbers are probably likely to be order of magnitude uh, similar. So now typically um, for the vegetation, now science would say that even though we have a big spike of emissions at the time of the bushfires, the regrowth would sequester that um, those greenhouse gases back. And so over a certain time period, you would hope that it would be close to net zero because, yes, you've lost a lot, but then you're sequestering it again. But again, it goes back to that point we talked about earlier. Are we actually going to be seeing our ecosystems as being a net source of greenhouse gases because that the frequency of fires is going to be too great that we're not re-taking up that CO2 and the other greenhouse gases um, that we normally would in these ecosystems. And so they will be uh, a net source and that those land-based sinks, um, places where we take up CO2, are going to be weakened. So that is another element of our climate system that has been perturbed very much and potentially in a, in a negative way by these fires that we've weakened our land-based sinks, which the Earth system, you know, the, the strength of those sinks over the last 50 years has been really important in taking up anthropogenic greenhouse gases. And if we've weakened those sinks in Australia, and this is replicated in other regions of the world, then that's a concern, of course, for our trajectory of climate change in the decades centuries ahead. So these are important science questions that it's the community are pretty galvanised to looking at at the moment. I'm not sure if this phrase has gained any traction in Australia, but in the UK people have started to talk about eco-anxiety. I wonder if we could now turn to the national mood to ask you a subjective question about how the country has responded, what the general feeling is in Australia and whether this will affect future policy. Of course I can't really speak for the whole population of Australia, but just a personal reflection um, from me sitting in Canberra where I sit over the over the summer um, and talking to lots of people as we've all come back from our summer holiday um, in the last couple of weeks. I think it's a very mixed feeling. Uh, one of the things about Australians, and it's I think true of any population, when a tragedy occurs, communities bond together very, very strongly, and Australians... You know, there's, there is an incredible community strength happening at the moment. Um, the donations that people have just poured into the communities that have been affected. In fact, those communities have had to ask people to stop donating food and clothing and other kinds of goods because they don't actually have the warehouses big enough to store 
all of the stuff that the rest of Australia who are watching in horror have donated. So there's been a huge outpouring of support for the fire-affected communities. Um, and so that's been a really positive thing for the community um, in, you know, reaching out, helping, raising money, having concerts, you know, we're, of course, of course got the Australian Open happening here next week and some of the tennis stars have had, um, you know, showcase tours tournaments to raise money, everyone's raising money, and that's been a really positive thing for the community to pull together to do. So there's that dimension. But I have to say that everybody that I've spoken to when I've said, how was your holiday, we've actually stayed, said to each other, we're not going to say Happy New Year. We're saying welcome to 2020 because we feel uncomfortable because it doesn't feel happy. Everybody has been very, very upset by what's happened. It's been quite distressing for people just to watch um, the impact on communities and people losing their homes. We've had deaths, of course, which is just, you know, the worst, worst thing that could happen. But I think the thing that's perhaps upset people the most is the impact on our wildlife and our forests, but particularly the wildlife. Um, yeah, it's just heartbreaking, really, um, to see those images. And so that's really upset people. I think it's um, made people much more, um, it's brought climate change in a very real way to their attention. You know, everything that the science has been talking about for 30 years, I think people suddenly are realising, oh, I see what you're saying. So it has brought climate change very much to the front of people's minds. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of mixed Feelings And for people living in the cities that have been affected by the bushfire smoke, it's been really difficult. Um, can you imagine um, having a summer holiday where you can't send your kids outside to play? have been cooped up inside and so you know all these all these effects that no one really thought about um I live in Canberra I'm a passionate rugby union fanatic <laughs> and our rugby team the Brumbies have, have relocated their training camp to Queensland because they couldn't train in Canberra you know all these things that have happened so it's been it's been a really it's really impacted people very closely so people have felt quite depressed I think uh, about what's happened but that's you know, been countered by the positive mood of people banding together to to really reach out a, a helping hand to those communities that have been affected. Now, you asked about climate change policy. I don't know. Uh, I think it certainly got the attention of our of our politicians and certainly our policy people in government asking us questions, the sort of things that we've talked about in this interview, uh, about what does this mean for Australia looking forward? How can we be more prepared? What do we need to do to build resilience? So I think that there's certainly a focus from government about ensuring that we are putting in place policies that build resilience and preparedness for fires in the future. So I think it's a positive coming out of what's been a, a pretty tough bushfire season. Um, I think the, the discussion around mitigation um, will happen as well. I'm not quite sure where that one will go, um, but I think it's very much raised a national conversation, um, put it on the front of people's conversations rather than at the back burner of people's minds. So I think that's a, perhaps it's a good thing to have come out of a, a very difficult summer. Thank you for talking to us today, Helen. 
That was insightful and fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to our Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes or SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org slash schools.